And I just want to welcome uh, all of you guys who are here today. We've been going through a study in the book of Colossians. And so I'd like to invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. I want to share with you a story as we get started. I was actually thinking about this this week as I was having breakfast with a guy here in our church. Back when I was in high school, I was standing around speaking with several of my friends, and there was a girl um, standing there talking to us, one of my friends, and she'd been having problems with her car and had taken her vehicle into the shop to get looked at, but they hadn't been able to figure out what was wrong with her, with her car. She had a conversation with the mechanic, but she was telling some of us guys, I, don't, I didn't really understand all the things he was saying, and I don't, know, I don't know what questions to ask. I really don't know a lot about cars. And the shop had not been very helpful. They had failed to resolve her issues. And one of my buddies asked her, he said, with a very straight face, he said, well, did they tell you to check the blinker fluid? And you're supposed to laugh at that part. <laughs> um, for some of the kids in the room, or maybe some of you who don't know a lot about cars, there's no fluid that has anything to do with blinkers. Blinkers is a light bulb, some wire to carry electrical current, and a switch. There's no fluid involved anywhere with your blinkers on your car. But he said, did you check the blinker fluid? Because you really ought to do that. It's very, very important. And she looked very surprised and said, no, they never said anything about the blinker fluid. And I've never checked it. And needless to say, uh, next time we talked to her and she had discovered that there's no such thing as blinker fluid, she was not very happy with us. Now, some of you guys know a lot about cars. I know some of you even work on cars professionally. So you laugh at that. You might not fall for a joke like that when it comes to your car. But let me ask you this. What about when it comes to theology? What about when it comes to biblical doctrine and the truth of Scripture? Do you have a working knowledge of the essential, essential doctrines of the Christian faith? Now, to go back to the car analogy, not everyone needs to be able to rebuild an engine from scratch. I certainly can't do that. And not all Christians need a doctorate in theology. Not all of us are going to write the next systematic theology book or teach in a seminary. That's fine. But we do all need to have a grasp of the essential truths of the faith. We need to have the discernment to recognize when someone comes along and feeds us a lie tells us something that is not true. We need to know this because it is essential that we discern distortions of the truth or, or when someone is promoting theological error, either through conversation or through public ministry, through their writings, through their teachings. And we need to know this not just so that we can be right. We need to know this so that we can be saved and so that the church can be protected from false teaching. And so that the gospel can be preserved. If you go to O'Reilly's and ask for blinker fluid, you're going to get laughed at. But if you fall into false doctrine, you are in great danger spiritually. You are at risk of apostasy. The error that the Colossians were facing was a faulty view of Christ. That's why Paul is writing to these people. They were hearing some things about Jesus, about salvation, about the gospel that were not true. If Christ is less than God... And if his work on the cross is less than sufficient, then it's going to leave you looking for something more, isn't it? So these people were being told they needed Jesus plus religious ritual, or Jesus plus this higher secret knowledge, or Jesus plus these mystical experiences with spiritual beings. And what Paul does to protect them from this error is to not necessarily argue with each of those problems, although he could. 
What he does is hold up the bright, blazing truth of Christ's deity, of Christ's supremacy, of Christ's sufficiency as the antidote to the spiritual errors that were gaining traction there in Colossae. We see this all throughout the letter of Colossians. In chapter 2, verse 3, Paul tells them that in Christ are hidden not some, but all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In verse 8 of chapter 2, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. In in chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, referring to Christ. In chapter 3, verse 4, he will tell us that Christ is our life. In verse 11 of chapter 3, he tells us Christ is the source of our unity, that he is all and in all. In verse 15 of chapter 3, he tells us that the peace of Christ is to rule in our hearts. He tells us in verse 16 of chapter 3 that the word of Christ is to dwell in us. In verse 24, that we are to serve the Lord Christ. Now, if all this is true, if Christ has such prominence and is so necessary to the Christian life, then we need to know who this Christ is. So the Apostle Paul, back in chapter 1, after mentioning the redemption that we have in Christ in his prayer for them, he launches into this extended hymn of praise to Christ. And in doing so, he rehearses the powerful truths about Jesus that you and I need to believe Truths that we need to hold on to. These are realities that we trust in. Truths that we celebrate. Truths that we are to promote with confidence and with joy. Look with me in chapter 1, verse 15 at our text this morning. Paul says, he, speaking of the beloved son of Christ, says he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Lord, as we read this text, I am a little overwhelmed and intimidated to think that it's hard to do this text justice, to fully unpack and explain the deep and profound truths that are found here. But Lord, we approach this text with trembling, but also with faith, knowing that your Holy Spirit will reveal the truth to us and illuminate it so that we can understand, so that we can see your glory and be changed. So we pray for your help now in Christ's name. Amen. This text here in Colossians chapter 1 is really one of the high peaks on the mountain range of glorious passages in the scripture. As you read throughout the Bible, you'll see that all of it really leads us to Christ, points us to Christ, even the parts that are not specifically about him. 
But there's a few passages where you get really to the very center and heart of the Christian faith. And this is one of those. And it's not just an important piece of the scriptures. This text is really the theological heart and center of this entire letter. To understand Colossians, what Paul's trying to get across, you have to know who Christ is. So Paul's point here in Colossians chapter 1 is very simple. Christ is supreme. And don't let anyone tell you differently. That's Paul's point that he's trying to make. In this text, Christ's glory, his supremacy, his sufficiency is seen in his divine nature, first of all. Secondly, in his role in creation. And then third, in his role in redemption. We'll only get through the first two of those this morning. I had planned to cover all three, but we want to wrap up in less than an hour and a half. So we're going to cut the last point and save it for next week. So we'll look at the first two. First of all, the glory of his person. We see this in verse 15, the first phrase there. The glory of his person. Christ is supreme in his divine nature. Paul says he is the image of the invisible God. Now the false teachers in Colossae were claiming that Jesus was not God. That Jesus was a created being. That he was one of many spirits through whom the world was created. And by whom, if we kind of work our way back, sort of like one of those Russian dolls, you know, where they nest inside themselves. If you work work your way back enough past Jesus to the spirit behind him and the one behind him, you eventually can reach God. That's what the Colossians were teaching, and that's why they were trying to convince people that they needed to seek out these spiritual beings. But Paul says that Jesus is God. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, Paul's statement here is not, I want you to understand the authority here. It's not only inspired by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, authoritative and true. It also squares with the rest of Scripture, especially the teaching of Jesus himself. This is not the only place where you find this doctrine taught. But in addition to that, to go even even another layer deep, Paul himself had experienced face-to-face the risen Christ. So Paul knows that this is true because the Spirit is inspiring this letter as he writes, because it squares with the teachings of the rest of Scripture, and also because he had experienced it himself. On the road to Damascus, Paul had encountered God the Son, and he was left forever changed. So he speaks with three levels of authority when he says that Jesus, this Christ, is the image of the invisible God. Now, some of you who have young kids, or maybe you've had young kids in the past, or maybe you work with young kids, maybe you've had a child ask you, what does God look like? Have you ever been asked that question before? What does God look like? Can we see God? And the answer is, we can't see God. God is spirit. He does not have a body, so we cannot see God. 1 Timothy 1.17 says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So we cannot see God. He's invisible. But not only that, if we did come face to face with God and with his glory, It would be fatal for us. His glory and his holiness, as Carrie shared with us this morning, preaching or teaching through Leviticus, his glory is so potent and so powerful and so holy that sinful man is unable to survive beholding the splendor of his holiness and his glory. Paul, or rather, Moses is told by God in Exodus 33 20, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. 1 Timothy 6, 16, Paul tells Timothy that God dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. 
But Paul tells us that Jesus, this Christ, our Messiah, is the image of this invisible God. The word for image here is akon. We get our word icon from it. It has the sense of likeness. And if you've been around at our church very long, or if you've read the Bible much, you've probably heard this language before. Genesis tells us that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. Now we know they are not God, but they were made to be like God in certain ways. They have a personality, an intellect, emotions, a will. They're created for relationship and to represent God in the world. They are bearing his image, little mirrors that reflect something about God. But this word, akon, image, can also have the sense of of not just being a, a copy, of being like something in a certain way, but in a deeper sense, revealing the true nature of something, of manifestation. And that's the way Paul's using it here. In Jesus, the very nature of God is revealed. In seeing Jesus, we see God. That's why the Apostle John writes in John chapter 1, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, speaking of God the Son, speaking of Jesus, John writes, he has made him known. Jesus himself taught this in John 14, 9. Jesus said, much to the fury of the religious leaders, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is not in the image of God like Adam. Jesus is the image of God. Of God. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You see, Jesus is something special. He's not like you in me in this sense because this cannot be said about any other man. There is no other person in the history of the world of whom the Bible can declare that he is the exact imprint of his nature, the very image of God, or as Philippians 2 says about Jesus, even before he was born and came to be here on this earth, that he existed in the form of God. Paul will make this point again in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It says it also in verse 19 of chapter 1. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul declares to these people that in seeing Jesus, we behold God. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Now, why is this significant? Well, there's lots of reasons, but think about how this message was so needed by the Colossians. They were being told about the need for some mystical knowledge or experience that that they needed to connect with God through this mediating ministry of all these different spirits and emanations that came from God. But Paul says, we don't need all that. Because we have Christ who is God. And we are united with him through faith. There's no need for any other intermediary. God himself has drawn near to us in the person of Christ. So he's our mediator, not some spirit. Or to bring it home to today, not Mary. Not the Catholic saints. No human priest. We are united with Christ who is God through faith. The truth that Jesus is God is important for us today because there are many who will today contest this truth. Islam claims that Jesus was a prophet and not divine. Jehovah's Witnesses claim that Jesus was Michael the archangel who became a man and was not God in the flesh. The Mormon church claims that Jesus was the first spirit to be born in heaven and is the brother of Satan. Liberal Christian theologians 
will claim that Jesus was not divine, but was simply a noble teacher. But scripture makes clear the full deity of Christ, that Jesus is one with the Father, sharing in his essence and of the same nature. Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples in John chapter 20, when he finally saw the risen Christ face to face, he cried out, my Lord and my God. That should be our response to Christ as well. Christ is seen as supreme in his divine nature. Paul holds up the truth of who Jesus really is to counteract the different errors that these people were facing. Christ is supreme because he is God. He is the image of the invisible God. That's Christ's glory in relationship to God, his divine nature. But secondly, we see the glory not just of his person, being God, but we see also here the glory of his power. Christ is supreme in his divine nature, but he's also supreme in his role as the glorious creator of all the universe. Continuing on in verse 15. This Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, Paul tells us, is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Let's just take this phrase by phrase. First of all, he is the firstborn. Jesus is supreme over creation because he owns it all. That's what Paul means here by firstborn. This is not meaning that Jesus was created. It does not mean that he came into being at a certain point in time. Rather, this term of firstborn refers to his rank. That Jesus is supreme, I actually like how the NIV translates this. He is supreme over all creation. The firstborn over all creation. Being the firstborn means that he is the father's representative. That, that he is the heir. The one who will inherit it all. Creation is his. He is therefore Lord over all. We see the same truth in Hebrews 1 verse 2. It says, in these last days he, God, has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed as the heir of all things, the firstborn. He gets it all. It's all his. He owns it all. We see that this was the promise made to Messiah, Psalm 89, verse 27. God says, speaking of his Christ, his Messiah, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Not that when he's born, he will be the firstborn. He's already existing. And God says, I will make him. The firstborn. I will confer upon him this status as the heir of all things. Paul's readers would have perfectly understood this language. They understood that a father had to pass on the birthright, the blessing, to his son in order to confirm his status as the heir. Now, if there was not a firstborn son, maybe you had all girls, or maybe you had three girls and then a son, um, he could pass it on to one who was not the firstborn. Or maybe if the firstborn was undeserving, the father could simply choose to pass on this status of firstborn to another child or to even a very trusted servant or maybe an adopted son. So Jesus was made the firstborn, not because he was born first. This is not necessarily about chronology, about time. Jesus is the firstborn because he's been granted this status from the Father. This speaks to his rank as being over all things. And there's a reason Jesus has this status. Paul says he's the firstborn over all creation. Look in verse 16. For, so here's the reason. 
for by him all things were created. So firstborn can't mean that Jesus was created because Paul says he's the one who's doing the creating. All things were made through him. As John says, there, apart from him, there was nothing made that was made. So there's two categories, things that are made and things that are not made. Jesus is in the category of things that are not made, and he is the agent of creation, the one doing the creating, the uncreated one who owns it all because he made it all. Notice the scope of this work of creation. By him, all things were created, all things. And Paul explains that in heaven, Speaking of the sun and the moon and the stars and the galaxies and the black holes, the planets, the dust, and all of the empty space in between it. Not just the heaven, but also the earth. Mountains, mammoths, and molecules. It all belongs to him because he made it all. Paul says whether visible or invisible. Visible meaning the material things, the things you can touch, the things you can see. But also the invisible. The things in the spiritual realm. And he unpacks this a little bit. Thrones, rulers, dominions, authorities. These are human and angelic. Caesar, made by God, owned by God. Christ rules over human powers, but also the spiritual powers. Both the holy angels and the fallen angels. These massive hierarchies of spiritual beings. These armies that wage war. Paul says Jesus made it all. And therefore he owns it all. He is the comprehensive creator. We worship a cosmic Christ. Uh, In Genesis 1, if you remember back how this book begins, we see the act of creation described, don't we? There's this repetition in Genesis 1. And God said, let there be light. And God said, and God said, and God said. And the refrain goes, and it was so. There is light. There is earth. There is darkness, day and night, man and woman. Trees, oceans. God created the universe by divine speech. He speaks it into being. That's why Psalm 33, verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his his mouth all their host. But as scripture unfolds, this divine speech, this word of the Lord is revealed to be personal. So John tells us in John 1, in the beginning, the same way Genesis starts, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Paul's getting at this same idea, that Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the Logos, the Word by which the creation was brought into being, the agent of creation. And this Word has come near to us and has been made flesh. It's Jesus, the Christ. He's not part of the creation. It was all made through him. He's not one of those powerful spirits or angels. He's the maker and owner of them all, supreme over all. And not only is it all made through him, but Paul points this out. It's also made for him. Everything exists to serve his glory, to serve his purposes, in order to bend to his will, as Paul tells the Romans in Romans 11, from him, through him, and what? To him. Are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. 
Jesus is supreme in relation to all of creation because he owns it all as the firstborn. He made it all as the creator. It exists for him, for his glory. But Paul's not done. Jesus is also supreme over creation because he was there first. He was there first. Notice what he says in verse 17. And he is before all things. The creator Christ was there before creation. And I love how Paul doesn't say that he was before all things. No, he says he is before all things. Jesus as creator exists, existed before the world began. He is outside of time and above time. He is the pre-existent God, eternal in his being. He never had a beginning because Jesus is the beginning. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning, God was already there, and he created the heavens and the earth. As it says in Revelation twenty-two thirteen, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Paul says Jesus is before all things. Jesus himself makes this point in John eight fifty-eight. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, I am. Those who were falsely claiming in Colossae that Jesus was a created spirit being, that he was less than the eternal God, they were dead wrong. Jesus is supreme over all creation. He owns it. He made it. It exists for him. He was there before it all came into being. And then Paul keeps going. Not only that, but he sustains it. He sustains it all. He is before all things, verse 17, and in him all things hold together. I'm not a scientist. I don't have a PhD in physics or in astronomy or in any of that stuff. But it's interesting to me that scientists can't fully explain what it is that holds subatomic particles together. This subatomic glue. There's different theories. They're trying to figure it out. They're studying it. But they don't really have the full explanation. They don't understand how it is that these particles that have different charges don't just explode in different directions. And the whole universe instantly dissolves into nuclear fission with intense heat and with a loud bang. They can't explain that. But Colossians can't explain that. Colossians tells us that Jesus holds it all together. What holds the universe together is nothing less than the power of Christ. And the more that scientists probe the vast expanses of the universe, and the more that they, that they peer into the microscopic mysteries of the molecule, the more that creation declares the glory of God. And what they see is something that we already know to be true. Uh, Dan Rudman, a friend of mine here in town, shared this quote with me a few years ago, and I love this. He says, uh, this is a quote by a man named Robert Jastrow in his book, God and the Astronomers, and he writes this. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. Isn't that the truth? Jesus not only created the world, it is he who now holds it all together. And we know this from scripture. Scientists are going to figure it out someday. But you know what? The subatomic glue that scientists marvel at 
It's simply the will of the creator sustaining his creation. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. As Lightfoot, not the KU basketball player, but the commentator, J.B. Lightfoot, different Lightfoot, as he says, it's because of Jesus that we have a cosmos instead of a chaos. It's Jesus who holds it all together. But someday Jesus is going to stop holding it all together. Did you know that? We actually know how the world ends. It's not going to be a comet. It's not going to be because the sun cools off and we freeze to death. Someday there is going to be a massive act of uncreation where Jesus is simply going to stop willing, stop holding together the world and the universe by the word of his power. And in that massive act of uncreation, everything will be dissolved. Nuclear fission. And a new creation will take its place in which we will dwell for eternity with Christ. This is what Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3.10. He says, The day of the Lord, speaking of that future time, will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. It'd probably be pretty loud, wouldn't it? Nuclear reaction. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Heat. And the results of that heat. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. There's going to be judgment. Verse 12, Peter says, The heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The world will not end either a split nanosecond before or after Jesus wills it to end. It will happen exactly when he decrees it. In the exact instant that he stops sustaining every particle of his creation. This is a big view of Christ, isn't it? This is, as we sang this morning, a glorious Christ. If there was any doubt what Paul meant by being in the image of God, by Jesus being the image of God, now it should be clear. Because such things that that are being said here about Jesus can only be said of the God of the universe. You can't say this about any other being. And Paul attributes all of it, all of this glory, all of this power, all of this supremacy as the creator and the sustainer and the owner over all things. He gives all of it, attributes all of it to Christ. The supremacy of Christ is seen in his glorious person. That's his divine nature, his deity. He is God. And his supremacy is seen in his glorious work of creating and sustaining the universe. As we pointed out, he made it all, the firstborn. He owns it all. It all exists for him. He holds it all together. And he was there before it all began. And as if this isn't enough, there's actually more. Next week we're going to see that in addition for praising Christ for For his divine nature as God and his glorious power as the creator, Paul is also going to rehearse for us his glorious provision as the redeemer. The one who brought creation into being is at work, making in us a new creation. This church of which he is the head. Paul's going to rehearse that. We'll get to that next week. And Paul will understand and and share with us the purpose of it all in verse 18. All of this is so that in everything Christ may be preeminent. Paul understands that if Jesus is anything less than preeminent, if he is regarded as anything less than fully God, 
if he is honored as anything less than the one who created and sustains the whole universe, if we have any other purpose in mind or in our heart that conflicts with it all existing for him, then we're missing it. We're missing it. This message is primarily intended to shape your view of Christ. Who do you believe Jesus to be? I think, first of all, we can draw from this that we need a high view of Christ. Let me ask you, do you have a high view of Christ? Jesus is not your buddy. And despite what the t-shirt says, Jesus is not your homeboy. And despite what some of the songs on the radio may give the impression of, Jesus is not your boyfriend. Jesus is the image of God and the author and sustainer of creation. We need a high view of Christ. Scripture does present to us a shockingly humble Christ at points. He comes as a baby with all the needs and the weaknesses that babies have. We see him as a carpenter working with his hands, as a servant, and as a sacrificial lamb. But scripture also reveals to us an exalted and glorious view of Christ as the omnipotent and sovereign creator of all the universe. And we need to understand him as both. We need to understand the the beauty and the shocking reality of his humility, his condescension towards us. But that only makes sense to us as being amazing when we understand his glory and how exalted Jesus is in the splendor of his majesty. So we need both. This exalted Christ is to be trusted, to be feared, to be worshipped, and to be proclaimed. We need a high view of Christ. Do you have a high view of Christ? Or are you overly familiar with him? Treating him not as holy, but as common. We need a high view of Christ. But we don't just need a high view of Christ. We also need the right view of Christ. It's not enough to simply be filled with awe and wonder, although that is necessary. But we need to be filled also with truth. We need precise language when we speak about Christ. We need precise and accurate thoughts about Christ. We need language and thoughts that are shaped by the truth of Scripture. This proper view of Christ, this correct understanding of Christ, is essential to the Christian faith. We need to resolve to reject error and believe the truth. Because if our doctrine of Christ becomes compromised, if we do not have the correct view of Christ, then the gospel has been gutted. Because Christ is at the center of the gospel. Our salvation becomes hopeless because we do not have God as our Savior. We begin worshiping and following and trusting in not the true Christ, but a Christ of our own imaginations. If we allow false doctrine to distort the truth of who Jesus really is. We need to resolve to reject error and believe the truth. Because Jesus is at the center of our faith. He is the cornerstone. It's in Christ that all God's promises are yes and amen. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So if Christ is anything less than fully God, our faith is shipwrecked. If he's anything less than completely sufficient in his work of salvation, then our faith is shipwrecked. It is literally impossible to overemphasize how absolutely essential the correct doctrine of Christ is. We need a high view of Christ. We need the right view of Christ. But we also need a humble view. We'll close with this, a humble view of Christ. When we have a high view of Christ, we see his glory. 
when we have the right view of Christ, where we are doctrinally precise and correct in understanding who he is and, and, and his nature as God. That should never puff us up with pride. Instead, it should humble us. And here's why it should humble us. I'll just read for you from 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 4. Paul says, speaking of unbelievers, people who have the wrong view of Christ, he says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the, of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, the only reason that you or I can be right about Christ in terms of really understanding who he is, seeing his glory and perceiving it rightly. The only reason we have hope of doing that is because the blinders have been removed. Because God has shown his light into our darkened hearts and our darkened minds. We see Christ as he is only because of grace. It's only because of grace. Not because of our intellect or our wisdom or because there's something more righteous or noble about us than someone else. Such knowledge of Christ, right knowledge, should therefore produce humility and worship, not pride. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Consider your calling, brothers. He says, think about it. Think about this for a minute. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? Why would God do it this way? Why would God choose to save the least likely, the least deserving, the weakest? Here's the reason, verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. There's no room for boasting. It's only by grace that we can perceive Christ and believe in him and receive his grace. Paul continues, because of him, because of God and his grace, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Let him boast in the Lord. We need a high view of Christ. We need the right view of Christ. But we need a humble view of Christ. May we see him today as high and lifted up. May we be filled with the knowledge of the truth, as Paul prayed earlier, concerning Christ's person and power. And may we be humbled by such knowledge so that we will boast always and only in the Lord. God, as we look into your word, we are amazed to see the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, who is the image of God, who is the creator and sustainer and owner of all things. God, humble our hearts. Humble us in our pride when we look on others who don't get it right like we think we do. I pray that we would be thankful for the truth that you've revealed to us. God, I pray that you would help us to think right thoughts about you. 
Help us to think thoughts about Christ and to speak of him in ways that, that come directly from your word. Protect us, God, from theological error, from those who would try to distort the truth about Christ, to distort the gospel. I pray that you'd give us wisdom, give us compelling words as we share with others the truth, others who have been deceived by Islam, by Jehovah's Witness teaching, by Mormonism, by secular, liberal thinking that has crept even into some churches. I pray, God, that you'd remove the blinders as we share the gospel so that more people will see the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, for your word, for its clarity and its power. May it have its work in our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.